more good. Thirsty? Drink better. Welcome to More Good Drinks. I'm your host, Tash McGill. In today's episode, I sit down with Brendan Coyle, Master Distiller at High West Distillery, straight out of Park City, Utah. We explore the incredible range of whiskies new to the New Zealand market, what they've been working on by way of blending core ingredients and really pushing the bounds of innovation. We talk about Brendan's own journey and what sustainability means for the distilleries of the future. Dive in, let's go. Well, now we started High West back in uh, 2006 and we sold const- uh, sold to Constellation Brands in 2016. Mm-hmm. So there's really no, you know, Constellation is the parent company now, but having said that, they really let us uh, control it just like we had in the past, everything from recipe development, management, you know, top to bottom. So it's actually quite great. Uh, I understand you spent some time in Scotland as you were training. I started in the brewing industry, right? So mm-hmm. I came in, I did my undergraduate at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah. And um, I just, you know, I really found myself getting into home brewing, spending all my free time and money home brewing in college. And I realized if I'm going to spend all my free time and money doing this, I should probably think about it for a career. And so that kind of sparked, you know, uh, the, the look with me. And um, I landed an apprenticeship at a brewing company locally in, in Salt Lake City, worked my way up there, became second brewer over, you know, four or five years into that position. And then I just decided to get serious about it. And I went overseas and uh, did my master's in brewing and distilling sciences at Harriet Watt. So I spent a couple of years in Edinburgh, Scotland doing that. And, um, you know, distilling was never, it was never part of the plans. It's like, that's the big transition, you know, that was never in the, in the plans. But when I came back to the States, um, I, I got really interested in, on the distilling side as, as, a, as an opportunity because I met the original founder uh, of High West. And so he was building something from the ground up. I love doing that. And so it kind of started from there. And that was 2006. The journey from brewing to distilling. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're part of a continuous spectrum that then takes kind of different forks in the road. You know, I've always been, to me, it's always been the, the, the wonderful blend of art and science that drew me in. You know, you have to have a pretty good handle on some very interesting and very fun sciences to do it well. Mm-hmm. And then you get the artistic side of it, the creation side of it, you know, to, to blend and create these wonderful products together and really, you know, bring a brand to life and, and grow it. Um, the common thread, I would say, is on the fermentation side. I mean, really, between brewing and distilling, when you're talking about whiskeys, for example, you're really sharing about 50 or 60% of the same sciences. Mm-hmm. You know, you're bringing grains in, you're mashing, you're fermenting. All, all that all that is the same sciences, really, uh, in its basic element. And so, and then, you know, distillation is taking it one step further to volatile chemistry, which just is, again, another layer, another new science, and, and, and quite fun. So to me, it's always been on the fermentation side. I'm a total nerd when it comes to science and fermentation science and microbiology. Mm-hmm. What yeast can really do for you in that process to create new flavors is, is very, very interesting. So it's really the science behind the fermentation that I love the most. Mm. So keeping that thought in mind, let's jump into what is it that most consumers experience when they experience a high west whiskey? Uh, what is the profile <laughs> or the, the outcome of those kind of fermentation directions that the distillery takes that create the unique profile of High West. So, you know, when, when we formed High West, we thought that there was there was plenty of, you know, caramel, vanilla forward kind of bourbons on the market. There was plenty of kind of, you know, slightly spicy rye whiskeys on the market. What we really wanted to do is to t- take those flavor profiles to the next level and make them very intense, increase the complexity and diversity and make a very distinctive, you know, whiskey. And we do that by turning up 
the grain usage to the max. You know, so our rye whiskeys are very, very high content rye, almost almost 100% in some cases. Um, our bourbons use a higher rye content in the mash bills, and they have a little bit more wild fermentations to them. So you get more of that kind of uh, bacterial note coming in uh, to increase acidity and, and really raise the complexity of the overall product. And so what you're really going to find with High West is that the the ryes are going to be, you know, quite spicy. And I don't mean spicy hot. I mean cinnamon, clove, nutmeg, you know, some mm-hmm. great mint and herbaceous notes in there. It's really just all about driving those flavor profiles to that upper echelon and bringing in as much diversity and complexity into the drink as possible. So they can drink well on their own, you know, neat on the rocks, but also stand up in a cocktail really well. So mm-hmm. it's not getting drowned out by mixers. You know, that's important. Mm. Uh, talk to me a little bit about Park City, Utah, so the home of, of High West, and how uh, obviously the fermentation and the science process and the gr- source of grain arguably plays a major <coughs> role in the development of those flavours. But what role do you see the context and the location of the distillery playing at all? Are you How are you managing climate and temperature and humidity and altitudes? I think the location is very liberating, right? Because, you know, if, if the one, if there's, the one thing that American whiskey has is heritage, mm-hmm. <laughs> deep, deep roots of heritage. And, that, and that is, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. But we're very much not a this is how my granddaddy did it type of distillery. You know, yeah. we're, we're in a very unique location. We're high elevation in the mountains near the resort town of Park City, which is known for skiing and mountain biking. And so when people come to our distillery, they're very much in vacation mode, you know. They're in a beautiful setting, high up in the mountains. They're in a very different setting than when you go visit other, you know, distilleries in Kentucky or, or Tennessee or in that in that bourbon belt, as we call it. And so it's we're not really shackled by by tradition and heritage, so we can do a lot of new and different things and not not feel compelled to follow a certain way of doing things. And so that's fantastic. Um, we are a high elevation um, uh, distillery, but I would say that the elevation doesn't make a huge difference in the flavor profile. It's more the climate, the dry climate. You know, we're, we have very low humidity uh, in the state of Utah, and we're still figuring that out, to be quite honest. You know, it, it changes our maturation profile. We're just approaching a 20-year-old distillery now, and so we're really just approaching, you know, that 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 first big chapter, I would say, you know, behind us and on to the next one um, because we, we measure in decades, not years, really, mm-hmm. in, in the distilling industry for the long term. And so um, it's really climate-driven. You know, we have a higher extraction on our barrels. We, we have a pretty good uh, ABV rise over time because it's such a low-humidity climate. And, um, and it leads, leads to some really, you know, big, popping, really aggressive style, you know, whiskeys. Um, and so, yeah, like, like I said, we're still figuring that out. But what we love to do, bottom line, is we love to blend. You know, we love to take all these different components. We produce great whiskeys at High West. I source great whiskeys across the U.S. We contract uh, uh, produce great whiskeys at other distilleries. But no matter where it's coming from, no matter where the components are coming from, it all works its way up into a very inter- interesting, you know, unique, diverse blend. And, and that's what that's that you know that that finish line that we that we strive for as we look f- for taking the blending process, the final blending process, and really turning it up a notch and using it to our advantage and creating some really interesting stuff. Mm. So I've been a huge fan of American whiskey since I first started exploring it, you know, going back to the very early 2000s. And High West for me was one of those brands that uh, from the outset kind of felt like, oh, these guys are kicking off. They're part of that new wave of American whiskey starting to come through, which is, as you sort of talk about, it's it's not necessarily uh, locked into the heritage pathway, but has lots of kind of modernity about it, lots of room for expression and exploration. Mm. 
So obviously we here are launching with the core range, which is the bourbon, the double rye, and early next year there's uh, something quite special coming down. I believe the campfire is arriving. Indeed. Um, Talk to us, though, about the rest of the range and some of the, those wild experiences. Uh, I guess it's an opportunity to um, inspire and encourage people to think more broadly and deeply about American whiskey than just um, perhaps what they might see in terms of, oh, you're an American whiskey, you've got a bourbon, you've got a rye, and then maybe you're doing some interesting stuff beyond that. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I, I think you're getting the rendezvous as well, I believe, next year. We've, we've, we've taken our core two range, we've expanded it back to our core four range, um, which, is, which is the double rye, the bourbon, uh, rendezvous rye, and campfire. You know, the rendezvous is, it was our first launch and most award-winning to date, actually. You know, back in 2007, we launched that product. And it garnered uh, a lot of attention from day one. And it kind of put us on the map, you know, who's this rye whiskey distiller and blender, you know, from the, the heart of the mountains and what the hell are they doing? You know, it, 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 it kind of opened everyone's eyes. So that was great exposure, great timing. Um, and what it is, it's a blend uh, across a wide variety of ages uh, and, and a few mash bills as well to really focus on what, you know, big, intense, you know, a little bit older rye can be. It's got both pot still and column still in the blend, mm-hmm. um, quite a bit of pot still actually, um, more than the double rye, quite a bit more. Um, and that's why it really lends like a, like a heavier, more intense, you know, a bigger, uh, bolder profile than the double rye. Um, and then on the campfire side of things, that's a, a truly innovative, it's a truly unique one. Um, people have often heard of every whiskey, you know, and, and probably tried every whiskey that goes into it, every whiskey type, mm-hmm. but they've never seen it all in one place together. And that really drives a lot of interest. It's a blend of uh, bourbon, rye, and peated scotch whiskey. So you mm-hmm. get that sweet kind of, you know, sweet corn bourbon uh, entry point. You get a nice spicy rye mid-palate. And then it, of course, has this long lingering finish of like some subtle peat smoke from the scotch whiskey. Um, and that's just really phenomenal. It's a great sipper on its own. But honestly, I have a lot of fun mixing cocktails with it because it mm-hmm. can put a really interesting twist on some classic cocktails with that inclusion of the peated scotch whiskey. Um, so that's fantastic, yeah. And so we try to really be as innovative as we can uh, within reason and expand, you know, the definition of whiskey for people. I think I'll, I always tell people that, you know, the whiskey ship is a very slow ship to turn, just mm-hmm. in the very nature of how we make the product, right? You know, you, you make the product, but then you got to age it up for two, four, ten plus years, whatever it might be. So when you really, you know, make a change in the process, when you, when you do an experiment, it takes years, years and years to see the, the true outcome of that move. So it tends to, the ship turns slowly. Um, but when you can really take a serious, uh, innovative approach is at the blending table. All your components are, have all gone through primary maturation. You have them all lined up in front of you. And then at the blending table, you can really do some interesting and wild things. And the campfire is a really good example of that. You know? and, and beyond that, we, we tend to do a lot of barrel finishes. We like barrel finishes. We have uh, two or three of them in the Australian and the, uh, and the New Zealand market right now. Um, and I believe there are riffs off of the um, the bourbon and the double rye. There's a rum finish out there. There's a, a, a port barrel, port wine finish out there. We do a lot of interesting and unique what we call barrel selects, and there's, mm-hmm. there's secondary interesting barrel finishes in the industry. So we do a lot of stuff. It's really delightful to hear somebody focus so much of their conversation on blending. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think makes a great blending philosophy for a distillery like High West? Is there, are there key values or uh, key ingredients that you're constantly driving because you know that they're important to the process? Um, 
I think it's very product dependent. You know, what 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 type of a finished product? What what type of you know uh, uh, an expression are you looking to to bring to the table in the end? And so it, it actually can change quite a bit, product to product. But how we we take a very slow and methodical approach to our blending uh, at High West. So. It really starts with I, I can kind of generally break it into three parts. You know, I, I feel like we, we we spend probably anywhere from three or four weeks all the way up to about maybe three or four months developing a blend. Sometimes it can take quite long. Campfire is a good example of that. And what we do is, you know, we 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 go through a round of what we call speed dating. We basically decide what components are eligible for the final expression that we're trying mm-hmm. to bring to the table. We, we identify the components, we line them all up, we do speed dating, and first impressions are important, right? To see, you know, what are the, what are the flavor profiles, you know, wh- what's the intensities in there, where would it fit best? Is it more of a foundational component, a mid-palate component, or like a very flavor-active, very interesting, you know, uh, uh, spice on top, so to speak? And we kind of break it down like that. We spend the first bit of time developing the foundation, that's the majority of the volume, and then we bring in kind of like the, the medium, uh, 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 the, the mid-palate, or like the, the, the medium level of of, of flavor profiles uh, and work on the mid palate that way by bringing in more flavor active, you know, uh, mm-hmm. components, but not necessarily real volatile components. Mm-hmm. That's reserved for kind of that third and final step, which is bringing in the accents, like the spice elements, where you might only use half a percent, one percent, you know, two percent, something like that of this component in the blend. But it is so impactful that a little goes a long way, and balance is critical with those elements, and so. We do, you know, kind of uh, break it apart in, in more steps than that sometimes. But just mm-hmm. to generally put it out there, it's kind of foundation, mid-palate, and then like the accent um, to, the, to the blend. Mm-hmm. And, and that seems to work very well for us. And so with having that very structured, methodical process to blending, I'm assuming, but correct me if I'm wrong, that that then plays quite a role in how you're rolling out production uh, in terms of what, those core ingredients that you are producing and then also the sideways experiments. But I'd love to know a little bit about what leads you into experimentation You know, when you're stepping away from perhaps those core ingredients. Yeah, I, in the whiskey industry, you're looking you're looking behind you a lot. You know, you're you're making these moves, you're making these um, educated guesses, so to speak, and then you're kind of looking behind you to say, okay, how did that work out? How much of it did we use? What would you change, etc.? And then you look behind you, you know, for. <laughs> 12 months or more sometimes. And then you look forward and say, okay, well, based on that, based on what we used, how it reacted, what we produce next year, so to speak. And so these actual decisions, you know, are multi-year decisions that you're pulling together. uh, And you're just, you're you're checking and rechecking, you know, uh, um, multiple times throughout the year. And so... You know, it definitely influences our production, but, you know, when when we decide that we're going to make a change, you know, you don't actually see that change for about a year or two years later, <laughs> actually come through and, and start to plan for it, which is kind of, which is kind of interesting. Um, so, yeah, it, it definitely influences it. We run uh, a close to 24-7 schedule at the distillery. We run one... We, we have two pot stills, 1,000-liter pot still and one 6,000-liter uh, copper pot still. And we're actually dropping a second one, second 6,000 in next year. Yeah. Right. And we basically run, you know, the big still close to 24-7. It's about three batches a day, you know, around the clock. We take a couple couple shifts off here and there for cleaning and maintenance. But you're, the distilling industry, you know, much like the brewing industry, is really built on efficiencies, you know. You kind of once you start running, you don't want to stop running because mm-hmm. everything shares, you know, an efficiency in the in the plant. And so you're you kind of get your plan going, you, you you get it moving, and you don't stop it for a while, and and you don't really change and make big changes in the process. You know, maybe quarterly or or or, or maybe you know in the middle of the year. And and so it's a lot of rearward looking. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I think it's always interesting to look at what the market trends are. So you talked about your rum finish, your rum cask finish, um, and certainly that's something that's emerged across a number of different producers over the last kind of five years. Um, are there? What is it that's in in terms of influencing what High West is looking at doing? Are you are you looking sideways at what's happening in the market? Are you influenced by what's available? Um, where do the ideas come from? Yeah, we're definitely we definitely look at you know our peers and and see what else is going on in the industry. That's not the deciding factor, but but mm. we but we do pay attention. You know, the American single malt uh, uh, movement is a good example of that. You know, I I was lucky enough I'm to. Glad s- you brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was lucky enough, you know, to do a couple of years of my grad studies there in Scotland. And so and the original founder of High West, you know, he was he loved Scotch whiskeys. And so they're very near and dear to our hearts. And so we had always, you know, planned on releasing a single malt, an American single malt. We we have been producing it for, for many years, probably seven or eight plus years, I guess now. Um, but we just launched it a couple of years ago, two, two or three years ago. And the first national launch was actually last year. Um, and so we're, I think I guess we're coming into our, our third year now uh, of, of national launch on the single malt. So, you know, the Scots started it. The Japanese followed up with some pretty impressive things over a couple few decades. Mm. You know, you see some really great Indian uh, uh, single malts out now. I think it's only natural that America's going to find their spot in the single, the global single malt category. What I'm really interested in seeing is that, you know, I would say that I focus on the consumer more than I focus on my peers in the mm-hmm. industry, right? Mm-hmm. The consumer's going to go out there and they're going to vote with their wallets. And they're going to decide the one or two or three most, you know, uh, uh, unique or interesting uh, flavor profiles for American single malt. Uh, and they, they'll show you what the biggest sellers are. And so I'm going to listen to them quite quite a bit. But it takes time for that, right? It takes, mm-hmm. takes you know, at least a decade, if not two, for that to happen. And so I'm very curious and excited to see where this goes over the next 10, 15 years and see where the, you know, the more mainstream kind of flavor profiles that evolve in, in American single malt. Because there's a lot of things being done right now. Mm. A lot of wild and different things are being done right now. And it's broadly interesting to look at how the regional development of some of those ideas is Exactly, happening. exactly, yes. Fascinating to me how even though branching out from a traditional, and this hasn't really happened in Japan. I mean, in Japan, obviously, they start with, you know, two major distilleries and Mm. the tranches of what does Japanese single malt look like really followed, you know, two distinct businesses. But but in the U.S., there's definitely a, I would say, there's definitely a Pacific Coast kind of profile that's happening amongst some of those single malts. American whiskey consumers in the bourbon and rice space have a high level of confidence. They know what they like. They're not necessarily afraid that their favorite... They're not necessarily remotely uh, wrestle with um, their favorite drop being a $29.99 bottle or a $39.99 bottle, but they'll also splash out quite happily into some of those higher price points. Um, But they're confident with what they like and with what they know. That's been my observation um, uh, of a very small slice. Uh, what? How do you think the American consumer is going in their journey of um, understanding and building confidence and interacting with the American single malt story? Uh, that's a that's a very selfish question. That, I'm just curious to know. No, what I, I, that's a that's a very it's it's a good question, and and I don't think there's like a great answer for it right now, to be honest, because mm-hmm. like you, you you do you're you're right, you do see some. Some regional variations, some 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 regional uniqueness that is being pushed right now, um, and and I think it really depends again, you know, on how how the consumer preferences, how the, the how those evolve over the next, you know, one 
you know, decade, mm. decade and a half. I think that you're always going to see, you know, the consumer of like the, uh, dare I say, 50s, 60s and 70s and maybe even the 80s is kind of behind us now, you know, where mm. you see like one big, huge or two big, huge driving flavor profiles over a long period of time. Um, you're going to see a lot just, just with everything, you know, everyone's so, so much more, everything's at your fingertips now and everyone's so much more well connected. Mm-hmm. And with social media, of course, driving a lot of that, you're going to see all these different things going on. I'm very curious to see if one or two really stick out and go big, you know, across the mm-hmm. world, for example. Um, but uh, yeah, I, 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 w- I, I kind of hope that that regional differentiation sticks around and, and it starts to develop on its own. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're in the mountains and, you know, the the Rocky Mountains or the Mountain West, as, as we say. So what we're developing is is a pretty – it's actually kind of a light, lighter and delicate right now, uh, at least. Things are – we're going to be doing some changes and experimenting a little bit here coming up. But uh, the last couple of releases have been a little more light and delicate um, type, but, but quite balanced and intricate, I would say, flavor profiles um, across new and used cooperage mm-hmm. and across very different um, mash bills. Mm. And so – what we've actually been doing is like trying to build up our stocks, build up our inventory of all these different mash bills and barrel finishes, mm-hmm. and primary barrel maturations. So we can use these first three, four, five, six years or so and decide where do we really want to dive in and play heavier, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. so, so what you've seen coming out so far has been, you know, a little, maybe a little more lighter, a little more delicate, um, well-balanced profile. You're probably going to see us start to get a little more assertive in the past, in, in the future, I think. Okay. Yeah. That's exciting. I'm excited to, to yeah. see that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's always fascinating. Uh, particularly in the single malt category it seems to be no matter where people are geographically the current trend is towards trying to push as much flavor as possible into some of those uh, particularly and particularly here in the southern hemisphere where there tends to be a little bit more of a focus on smaller casks a faster rate of kind of cask extraction uh, pushing for not necessarily maturation or integration of the spirit but more flavor in the spirit Mm -hmm. you know and that's that's kind of an interesting space and obviously in Tasmania there's a huge focus on that single cask release as being a way of taking those products to market so it's really interesting to see it happen at scale in the US and to see that that scale and volume and the ability to build off a much larger base seems to be influencing the way the industry approaches moving into that space Mm -hmm. in perhaps a more methodical way. Who are some of the heroes or the people that you look to that you think are um, also on this journey of leading the way in innovation? Uh, I mean I, I tend to look towards, I mean, let's just talk history just for a second. I mean, th- talking more towards like flavor profiles and, and categories, you know, um, just briefly about that. Yeah, I tend to look towards, I've, we talked about the Scotch whiskey industry already, and I think they've done some, some the heritage there is amazing, and, and, and they've actually, they've perfected it, you know, between the Scotch whiskey, uh, Scotch whiskey's coming out and the Japanese whiskeys, you know, in the, in the more recent history, I think they've really perfected perfected that flavor profile for that process mm. on the blending table i looked at cognac a lot um i think there's some some amazing uh uh cognac blends being done across a wide variety of ages that's one of the uh, one of the um uh industries we look towards that gave us inspiration for rendezvous rye you know mm. blending the very very young and the very very old together and everything in between and giving pushing a, a big diversity and flavor profile that way and so that's very interesting um brandies in general you know the cognacs and brandies in general i look towards and I get a lot of inspiration uh, there. Um, And then on, you know, outside of the actual spirits industry altogether, I'm a huge fan of uh, cross-pollination, as I call it. What can you learn from, like, wine yeasts in Mm -hmm. the distilling world?
world. Um, we've done a whole slew of, of yeast trials in the past, and we're probably going to do some more in the future here. But um, what can you learn from from uh, different th- like things like sake yeasts in the in the distilling industry and things of that nature? You know, we've we we really have pushed hard on that in the past because I think that that is um, a huge outlet for opportunity in new flavor profile development and innovation when you look outside of your actual industry and in, into related industries and, br- and and bring it in, fold it in, you know, mm. to what you're doing. I think that's really, really important. Yeah. What do you do when you're uh, not distilling or brewing or thinking about these things? I go skiing. <laughs> <laughs> right? That makes I, uh, sense. I, uh, I, I'm a huge mountain head. I, I go mountain biking. I go skiing. I go hiking, backpacking. I go canyoneering in the desert of southern utah i go i mean i just i that's a big reason how i ended up in that part of the world uh to right. live was because i loved being in the outdoors period mm-hmm. um and so yeah if i'm not doing this you'll usually find me in the backwoods somewhere doing something fun like some backcountry skiing hot topic in the industry at the moment globally locally <clears throat> and in part of the u.s is the impact of sustainability environment location it would be hard to think about a distillery being being in a space that is surrounded by so much natural beauty and not think about, okay, you know, how are we impacting this for good or bad? So what's the highway sustainability story at the moment? I think it's a great question, and, and I think about it more and more all the time. You know, um, it's and it's hard. It's a really hard topic in the mm. distilling industry. You know, you're basically dealing with an industry that heats things up, then cools it back down, then heats it up again, then cools it back down again, right? And that's mm-hmm. just the basics. And then you can dive into even more uh, detail around that. So it's it's difficult for us. Um, so first and foremost, we started off by, you know, dealing with our, our, our waste product, which is spent grain. Right. Um, and that is, uh, you know, essentially it's, it's your, your distiller's beer when you're done distilling with it. You know, what do you do? You've extracted all the ethanol and a bunch of flavor and, and aroma. What do you do with it? Ours uh, goes down to Salt Lake City. It's about a 35-minute drive down the mountain. Uh, down a mountain pass from us uh, to Salt Lake City and goes to an aerobic digester um, mm-hmm. where it actually goes through aerobic and anaerobic digestion to, to, to uh, produce uh, power to fuel the grid of Salt Lake City to turn the lights on. Um, so it's a totally natural way uh, um, to, to deal with that waste product and turn it into energy, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that's we feel pretty good about that side of our effluent. Um, our power consumption, we've bought into a um, sustainable program with our power provider where 100% of our power coming into the grid is uh, fueled by renewables, both mm-hmm. solar and, and wind. And so that's great. So we know that we can, you know, we, we pay more for it, obviously, but it's important, you know, we're basically buying more renewables into the system so we can, you know, every... Every uh, uh, unit of power we use comes from renewables now into the grid. So that's great. Um, I think, you know, the hardest part is like, you know, the gas consumption. And we're working on that right now. It's like we bring in natural gas to fire our boilers to heat the stills to actually distill. And that's the really tough one that everyone's having the hardest time grapple. Uh, there's some really interesting technology coming out that we're looking at um, that's actually solar-based, which is pretty cool. It might not be a 365-day solution, but it could be you know a big chunk of it. And so we're exploring that right now. Um, we, we focus on it daily, and we want to make you know uh, gains every single year. Um, but you can actually we have a, a developing page on our, on our website to it right now, so you can take a look at it on our website. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big one for us. That's uh, do you, how, how do consumers play into that story? Do they care? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I think I mean, yeah. and especially the younger consumer. You know, when you're mm-hmm. looking at the ages of you know, for first drinking age, you know, in the states is 21, so first drinking age all the way up to you know at least 40. Uh, the younger consumer 
really cares. And then they actually, they seek out the information, they do the research themselves, they put in the effort, and they make a lot of choices based off that now. And so we're very in tune with that. Um, so they, I, I would say they deeply care. Yeah, mm. I mean, we are kind of in that, uh, we're, we're in a little bit more of a luxury space um, for, for the type of spirits we produce right now. And our consumer does tend to trend a little bit older right now, I would say, but that's changing quickly. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of young a lot, a lot of you know, young consumers that care about quality, care about sustainability, and have some disposable income, they're coming in and they're buying these things. You know, We're, our, our 25 to 35-year-old consumer is growing, uh, a percent of, the, of, of our consumer base is growing quickly. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a big deal for us. And being, you know, where we are in the mountains with all that impeccable beauty around us, it's Utah, Utah as a state draws a lot of dollars from tourism every single year. And so... You know, our air quality is important to us. That's something that the state as a whole is working on right now. Um, and, and, and we can't ignore it at all because that's our future for, mm. for, for our dollar, for sure. Mm. Yeah. A couple of other things that I'm interested in exploring with you. Uh, what are the challenges that you see for High West but also for the industry as a whole right now? What do you think, you know, obviously uh, 18 months ago there was a lot of talk about, uh, there was a lot of talk about casks, you know, uh, virgin American oak was all of a sudden going to be in very short supply and what was that going to mean for the industry? Um, but what do you see some of the challenges as at the moment? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, we talked on the sustainability piece, so I'll kind of put that to bed just for now. Since, but that that is definitely a, a challenge for us, and uh, I think it's a long term opportunity. But in in the near term, it's definitely a challenge. Um, quite frankly, the. The, the shelves are crowded right now, and everyone everyone and his brother has a whiskey company, and so it's competitive out there. There's a lot of choices out there. And, and I think that, you know, just like any consumer good, uh, some of the choices are far better than others, whether it's quality, whether it's sustainability initiatives on, and on the back end, whether it's, you know, it, it really depends. But there's there's whiskeys that are just flat out better out there uh, than, than others. And I'm not going to – I'm obviously not going to name names or anything like that, but I think the point of this comment is how does the consumer weed through all that choice, all those choices, mm. being bombarded with marketing, being bombarded with, you know, drink me, drink me uh, ads for this, that, or whatever reason, how does the consumer weed through all that to find the right choice for them, for their palate and for their, you know, for their morals and, 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 and whatever it might be. That's really challenging, you know, to get, access to the consumers that we want to get access to weeding through all the noise out there is, is a huge challenge. Thankfully, the consumers, you know, pulling their weight uh, nowadays, and they're, mm-hmm. they're doing a lot of research on their own, you know, which right. is great. So if you can put the information out there, you can make it accessible. Um, they can usually help you with that. So that's, that's fantastic. But I think that's a huge challenge, you know, of the crowded space, um, for sure. No doubt we're in the age of uh, low alk and no alk um, proliferation. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's an important health consciousness is, is, a, is a really important choice to make these days. Um, in the spirits biz, we have high alcohols. That's, mm-hmm. that's straight up just the way it is, you know, and hard to change <laughs> the, the hard to change that the, um, the low alcohol and no alcohol spirit space. It's like, it's interesting to me, but I think that just purely the component of ethanol mm. is part of the sensorial experience. Mm-hmm. It has a body and a mouthfeel to it. It adds to the flavor profile. And so yeah, I don't think you can 100% replace it. Or you know, And I think these new products that are low and no alk spirits, I think they're no doubt interesting and important, but, but, they're, but they're very different than, than the high-proof stuff. And, you know, so to me, it's all about 
I don't necessarily want to focus on, you know, changing the alcohol content of what we do. I'd rather focus on moderation. You know, I'd rather focus the, the brand on, look, this is a special item. Mm-hmm. It's not for, you know, heavy consumption. It's not for this or not for that. What it's for is, is moderate consumption, celebration, you know, treating yourself, so to speak. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the better focal point. And also just living a healthier lifestyle in general. I don't need to get into like how much we need to exercise more. We, we can, that's, right. that's a whole other show. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, that's a whole other topic. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, but no, I think, I think um, health, uh, health choices and, and, and having a healthy lifestyle is super important. And, you know, sometimes we're contradictory to that in, in all alcohols. And so to me, it's about, yeah, moderation and balance in the life. A producer once said to me that the worst the worst thing they could imagine is not that somebody would pick up their uh, pick up their bottle on the shelf and then put it down and choose not to buy it, but that they would pick up the bottle off the shelf, choose to buy it, and then drink it without appreciating it. I think it's well said. Yeah. Time is an interesting question in an industry that is growing quickly and expanding. What are your thoughts on the relationship uh, between uh, time, both? rapid growth in industry but also time in barrel and what that means for uh, for good spirit outcomes and the way that we are approaching or experiencing the whiskey industry at the moment there's been a lot of attention on the distilling industry um, because uh, and the branded you know distilling industry because hey you can make a lot of money <laughs> and then there's been that's been kind of like an approach to some 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 brands and some investment and things of that nature while I'd say it's more on the uncommon side than the common side there's a lot of you know for every brand that's successful does really well for itself and maybe it you know grows for you know 10 15 years or so and it sells to a larger company and founders make a bunch of money or whatever it is, you know, that that's not the norm. You know, there's so many, many, many more distilleries and breweries and wineries that, you know, are start small and stay small or they actually even fold and they mm. and they close up a shop because it's tough. It's capital intensive and it's hard uh, to remain relevant and to stand out, out out there. I think time is one of those things in our industry that is necessary to a point and you can speed some things up, but there's certain things you just can't speed up. And you have to understand getting into it that certain time is important. The small cask, you know, movement is, is interesting to me because if, the reason why we are where we are and the consumer uh, has a flavor profile that they expect on their palate or something near to it that they expect on their palate is because, because a long time ago, you know, 53-gallon barrels in the States and, and, you know, 60 or just over 60-gallon barrels in other parts of the world – became kind of the standard. And then that volume to surface area relationship with the spirit inside the cask over a certain amount of time developed us a flavor profile that the consumer has come to expect over the past 200 to 300 years. Now, if they did it with five-gallon casks or 10-gallon casks two or 300 years ago, then that's what the consumer would expect nowadays is that flavor profile. So those that are trying to get into it by doing small cask maturation, not to explore a different flavor profile, but purely to drop time out of the equation, mm. that's challenging because you're, you're, you're not going to get to a balance that the consumer expects. And I'm not saying that, you know, everyone's product should taste like everyone else's. That's not the point. The point is, is that there's a certain, you know, balance in the complexity and, and building that flavor profile that comes from that certain size cask. So now flipping that and saying we're, we want to get into small casks because we want to explore different flavor profiles or we want to explore like, you know, this, this, uh, this other type of product, that's great. Have at it. That's, it's innovation. That's fun. But purely using it as a mechanism to drop time doesn't work out for me personally. I don't, it doesn't, mm. doesn't, doesn't do it for me. 
Um, time is something that in this industry you need to know that it exists and how much it costs getting into it. Because if you don't do the math and if you don't know that getting into it, you're going to find yourself in a very uncomfortable position in about three or four or five years. Mm. Do you think, have you observed, and are you curious about whether or not that consumer palette is changing over time as we start broadening perhaps what that expected flavor profile is in the American whiskey space? No, I think it's definitely changing. I, I think it's, it's expanding. Um, you know, with the older consumer, let's just say 40 years old and, and, and older. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I think for, I'm for, I'm 42. <laughs> I'm 42 and I wouldn't call myself old right. even yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. let's just say, let's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's just say the back half. Okay. So that on the back half of our consumers, um, I would say that they're more kind of focused on that more traditional leaning. It doesn't have to be straight up, you know, what they had before, but more traditional leaning flavor profile, especially in bourbons and rye in the United States. And then in the front half of that consumer, you know, from the drinking age on up to forty, you know, they're they're definitely more open to experimentation and 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 expanding their flavor profiles in their head, you know, uh, more than that. And that's pretty interesting, I would say. And I think it's only going to continue because everyone's doing all these different and weird things, you know, and now, and I'm, and we're responsible for it too. I mean, look at campfire as a blend, you know, that's a very different, unique, you know, you have very American, uh, 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 flavor threads running along with very Scottish flavor threads in there. And, and, and that brings you to a very unique place, I'd say. So, and I think it's great. I think innovation is fantastic, but I think there's just no doubt what's going to happen nowadays is going to be a, a widening or, 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 or diversification of flavor profiles out there. I think the days of having, you know, the, the uh, global sensational hit that lasts for decades, I think that's mm-hmm. kind of getting behind us now, you know? Yeah, okay. You know, I liken it, I, I often liken it to like music, you know? Mm-hmm. Like Michael Jackson existed in a very interesting time and he was a global sensation yeah, because his music was fantastic, but also, you know, the community had, the global community had access to less at that point mm. in time. You know, it was harder to get globally famous and globally and get, get in the ears of everyone out there in the world. And so if you got into that stream and you worked your way to the top, you could just conquer it all, really. Mm. But nowadays, anyone, you can get out there, you know, any, any place in the world, um, you can get out there and you can get your music heard, so to speak, in the, in, on the right platforms uh, online. And so I think gone are those days of like the mega sensational multi-decade kind of uh, 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 hits. I think now you're going to look at see a lot of diversity and a lot of uh, different um, kind of uh, uh, expressions have a good following across the globe. Mm. You know, I think it's, 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 diversity is going to win out in the, in the long term. Bring it into land. You've mentioned cocktails a couple of times. Something that is unique, I think, to the American whiskey market more so than the traditional Scotch market is that uh, people are unashamedly love using bourbon, rye, American whiskeys in cocktails. It's a it's a mixing ingredient as much as it can be a sipper to be enjoyed on its own. Uh, so talk to talk to me about High West's relationship with bartenders, the bartending culture. Uh, what kind of profiles does High West stand up uh, to? Do you have particular favorites? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> we. if you ever have the opportunity to visit us uh, in Park City, 
that's on the list. I'm putting that down as an invitation. Thanks, uh, yeah, to I'll you, to, to you, and everyone else out there, if you ever have, <laughs> if you ever have the opportunity to visit Park City, you'll find that we have you know almost as great a love for you know the culinary arts uh, and 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 the bar program uh, and bartending and mixology as we do of just core whiskey expressions themselves. We think that it's the entire experience, you know, front to back. It's pairing those whiskeys with fantastic food, you know, in a wonderful environment with great people around you on a multi-hour kind of ex- uh, exploration um, of, of flavor profiles. We, we love it. And so that's what the bar program is to us. It's really the culinary arts, right? I mean, you're, it's, 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 it's a food product. And once you take whiskey and you put ice in it, you've created a cocktail. You're adding water. So that's your first, you know, entrance into cocktails. From, from there, expanding out, you can do some pretty amazing things with our products, I would say. And we actually have a James, uh, James Beard nominated uh, a bar program in, 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 our, in our home base in the saloon, uh, our saloon distillery in Park City, Utah. And so it's definitely worth a visit because what you're going to find is that we spend an incredible amount of time and money um, building a bar program that changes seasonally and really shows you what flavor profiles are possible when you're mixing with big, bold, assertive uh, whiskeys like ours. And... I mean, I could I could go into exhaustion, like listing and naming all these different <laughs> cocktails and mixers and, and and components. Because and honestly, it changes seasonally. Because our our crew at at uh, the saloon in Park City is so good at exploring and building out, you know, a bar program that every season my my tastes kind of take a different turn, you know, and my mm-hmm. my preferences take a little bit a little bit different turn. Um and so I think we exist just as much for, you know, the cocktail scene and the bar culture as we do kind of the uh the 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 neat or on the rocks straight up type drinker. Mm-hmm. Uh distiller to bartender what would you love for each bartender that now has the opportunity to engage with this product in New Zealand in a different way? Um, what would you like them to engage with first and foremost? What's the what's the takeaway experience as far as you're concerned? It's a huge question. <laughs> I, like to, I like to finish on a high. Um, you know, we're all about what we, we call, you know, distinctive and complex whiskeys. And I want a bartender to put us in their lineup on the back bar on the cocktail menu because they're interested in expanding the definition and the experience that American whiskey can be really I mean we 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 put out a lot of effort to try to be different and not just different for different sake, but different for complexity's sake and enjoyment and experience sake. And so I, I, I see the success story of High West and being put on the cocktail menus and the back bars because you want to expand your program into new avenues, you know. And, and, and the, um, the double rise, spicy as it is, and focuses on, you know, you know great distillate, you know, popping spice rye forward. Uh, character and the campfire being truly unique and diverse and, and then the cask finishes you know that we do that can really push the boundaries of what a whiskey can taste like be- just because of secondary finishing and, and single cask um, I think you know you, you put us in the back bar because you want to expand your program you know you're like you're you're happy you're with with where you are in the industry you love these products but you just want to take it to the next level and you want to expand and offer your customer something a little bit outside of their comfort zone or a little bit outside of their experience zone when it comes to, you know, great whiskeys. Any parting words? 
I've had an absolute outstanding time in Australia and New Zealand now. Um, it's my first time here, and so I obviously didn't have too many expectations because I hadn't been here uh, before, but I've had an absolutely outstanding time. The culture's been been fantastic. I look forward to coming back the next time and seeing, you know, the, the brand grow uh, and the fan base grow and doing some more of this. And I just thank everybody for the hospitality. That was Brendan Coyle from High West Distillery, brought to you by Constellation Brands and More Good Drinks Pod. Be sure to head to moregood.substack.com and subscribe. Uh, Stay tuned for all these future episodes and sign up for the newsletter while you're at it. All of this brought to you by me, Tash McGill, and The Feed.